Well, church, it's great to see you guys again today. And uh, if this is the first time or first time in a long time, we started a series back in the fall on the life of Christ, eternity past to eternity still future. Just curious. I'm wondering, like, how many of you faithful members, like, know my intro words, like, the every, yeah, yeah, all right, we, yeah. You know what we're up to and stuff. And, and we're wrapping this thing up by the end of the summer or by the beginning of the summer. But, um, uh, we're going to be rewinding a little bit in the story today. We're continuing that today. We've moved through some of the different teachings of Christ, and we're getting into some of the different encounters that he had uh, with various people. Specifically, we're going to take the next five weeks to t- look at some of the encounters that he had with different women who had these encounters with Jesus and would go on to make an enormous impact in the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bible, want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. Um, if you didn't bring it, no big deal. I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen, and it'll be easy for you to uh, follow along there. Uh, But the passage we're going to look at today is going to be the story about Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. And what's beautiful about this story is after one encounter, uh, this woman turns around and and is so changed that God is able to use her to be one of the the first and one of the most effective lay evangelists that we're going to see in all of Scripture. And so it's a beautiful transformation that takes place. Um, I don't know how you typically feel about evangelism when I say the word evangelism. It's one of those, uh, those hot topic words that uh, we sometimes talk about in the church, and some people love it, some people hate it. Uh, my hunch is that if the stats are true, then it's probably one of those more aspirational values that we hold uh, that may not really be a functional value. Um, I was reading this, this study on the, the state of evangelism in the church today uh, not long ago. It was talking about how about 80% of regular evangelical churchgoers, that's you and me, if you're, you're sitting in an evangelical church, and if you come somewhat regularly, that's what it's talking about. 80% of you um, already believe that it is important to share your faith with other people. In other words, we recognize this. One of the tenets of evangelicalism is that we believe that this is a gospel message which must be shared, that salvation and eternity is on the line in this message, that God's glory is on the line. This is a, a message that must be shared. And so 80% of our gathering here believes that that is true, um, yet only 18% of us have done it even one time in the past year. Um, by the way, church, like that number plummets all the way down to 5% among people who are simply professing Christians. It's one of the, again, unique things about evangelicalism is we believe that this is a thing and that God has given us this mission and given us this message, and we must go and engage a community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm saying it's a probably a more aspirational value, 80% down to 18%. It's one of these things we talk about all the time here in the church. We say things like our mission is to love all and to help all follow Jesus. And one of our greatest core values is that we're about God's global mission and not our own personal comfort. And we we talk about these things all the time. Uh, We even share some of the stories and we celebrate some of these stories, right? Um, This this past weekend, I was talking with Mark Harward, a a volunteer leader inside of our church. And uh, he reached out to a bunch of men in our church and invited them on Easter weekend to go down to Huntsville State Correctional Facility and to go share the gospel with a bunch of inmates along with Bill Glass Ministry that weekend. And uh, he was just sharing me the story. This wasn't a church program. It wasn't a church-initiated thing. Hey, go do this. Lay-led, lay-inspired, coming out and saying, hey, join me. We're going to go share the gospel in this prison. They saw 600 brand-new professions of faith. It wasn't just them. It was a handful of other people, too. 600 brand-new professions of faith that weekend, 1,800 rededications of faith uh, with people who were in the, in, in the state system at that time. 
This past week, I was talking with a group from there doing our food pantry over there. Uh, every single month, they engage the surrounding community with families that are in need, uh, help some, provide supplies and food. They pray with them. They continue to share the gospel. And I was learning this past week, again, not a church-initiated thing. Uh, they're telling me, hey, we're, we're, we're engaging with the community, and we're seeing some of these needs that are around us. And we decided that we're going to go ahead and start offering some ESL classes and teaching some people how to, how to read and how to speak English so they can get by uh, here in America really well. And, and we hear these stories, right? And, and, and those are just kind of a, just a couple of them off the top of our head. We could tell these things all day long. And we celebrate these stories. And we love it when people are engaging with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a number of different ways. But the reality is that while we value it, while we talk about it, we lift it up over and over again, the reality is that very, very few of us are actually engaging. And I think we know some of the tensions that are there. There's a lot of different reasons. I think you can get to, hey, heart issues there. Um, that uh, how much do we love the Lord our God, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How much do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Um, there's a lot of other obstacles that are kind of getting in the way. Um, and I think we get this. I told you a little while ago, about 50% of millennials today are saying things like, it is actually immoral for you and me to proselytize or share your faith, to engage in a conversation with a desire to convert someone to faith. I mean, it's a strong conviction that that's not just, hey, something that we're passively not doing. This is actually immoral for you to go and engage in this kind of activity. And, of course, the reason is because there's a strong conviction that to do so is actually arrogant. It's prideful for you to believe that you, that you have found truth that someone else doesn't have at this point in time. And I, I was reading this blogger the other day, put it like this. He says, uh, he's a Christian blogger, by the way, and he says this. He goes, I know that we're supposed to tell people about Jesus, but I hate the idea of pushing someone against their will to convert to my way of seeing God. When I talk to people of other world religions, I don't want to come across looking like I think that my religion is better than theirs. It just seems very, very arrogant. Anybody ever heard anything similar to this before? Or maybe you've even felt it yourself. And maybe that's kind of been the, 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 the nagging thought in the back of your head saying, like, who am I to go share with anybody and to say, hey, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Who am I to go and, and engage this mission? It just seems like a very arrogant endeavor to say, uh, you need to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, other people, we, we know the tension, right? This is, the, no one likes to face rejection, right? This is a terrifying endeavor. There's probably not a lot more uh, terrifying about the Christian calling and stuff than going out and engaging either a stranger or a loved one with the gospel of Jesus Christ and, 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 and risking rejection in that level. We, we, we felt that before, right? Uh, it's, it's scary. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, I love it, he, he, he defines evangelism like this. He says, evangelism is an awkward conversation between two very nervous and very terrified people. <laughs> right? Isn't that, isn't that good? Like, I think he's, he's absolutely right. We've been there before. You're, like, you're kind of going, hey, we know we need to have this conversation. And both of you are like, you're sweating. Your armpits are sweating. You don't know exactly what to say. And it's just kind of a terrifying endeavor. And what ends up happening is that all of that fear and all of those different things going on in our head saying, hey, this is arrogant for you to go and have this conversation. They end up keeping us on the sideline. They end up keeping us silent about the thing that is the most important thing in our life. And the reason that I bring that up is because I think in the passage we're going to look at today is Jesus goes and he engages this Samaritan woman. This engagement is going to break down a lot of the fears and a lot of the objections that you and I have when it comes to engaging a community, a lost and dying world, with the hope of the resurrected Christ. And so I want to jump into that this morning, and I just want to show you this engagement. Uh, John chapter 4 is where we're going to be, and uh, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, as Before the first service, I love it, Travis said something to me that I ran with in the first service. He just goes, this is kind of like the KISS method for evangelism, right? Keep it simple, stupid. 
Keep it simple, stupid. And that's exactly what this is. I think you're going to see this in the story, how, how simple this engagement is and how simple what it is that God has called us to do actually is. And so, church, that we would be able to keep it simple. Not that you're stupid, but, you know, you get what we're saying here. So keep it, keep it simple. Um, as a reminder, we're, remi- we're rewinding a bit in the story, so we're not continuing just after the resurrection. We're going to go back to Jesus' first year of ministry here. And so we did the resurrection to keep up with church calendar. We're going back in time. It's the first uh, year of his ministry. The disciples have been called, and John the Baptist has been paving the way. Uh, they've been baptizing a lot of people already. And so what's happened is that uh, Jesus' fame is beginning to spread at this point in the story. That the Pharisees and religious leaders are getting very angry that Jesus' fame is spreading. And that his disciples really are baptizing more people than John the Baptist is. And so there's uh, a rising uh, kind of a... a a contentious thing that's about to take place. And so that's why Jesus and the disciples are going to take off from where they are. And it says that they're going to head to Galilee. And then in verse 4, it's going to say that it's going to say that on their way to Galilee, that they actually had to go through Samaria. Now, um, that's what it says there in verse 4. Um, we're going to see here in just a little bit, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Um, Jesus chose to go through Samaria. And I think that Jesus chose to go through Samaria because there was a divine encounter waiting to happen. And he had a divine appointment that he just didn't want to renege on with this woman who's going to be sitting there at a well who needs to understand who he is. Um, God is going to, Jesus is going to break into her life and she's going to go on and she's going to, she's going to lead many, many Samaritans and, uh, to understanding of the gospel. And they're going to come to believe in Jesus and stuff largely through what takes place here. So it starts off in verse 4 and it says, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus and uh, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well at about noon. A little, after a little while, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. So Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? A little backdrop, if you remember anything about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, but the racial tensions that we feel today um, they didn't begin recently. They didn't begin in America. They began way back at the beginning, the inception of sin. As soon as humanity began to try to self-justify and to create these uh, laws in and of themselves to be able to make themselves feel righteous, they began plummeting other people. And uh, racism and, and uh, oppression came into being. Uh, you're seeing a lot of tension here between Jews and Samaritans at this time. Um, it's not without a good reason. There is a lot of things that took place in their past. You probably remember some of this story from the big story we did a, a year and a half ago. Uh, back in about 722 B.C., uh, the nation of Israel is divided between a northern and southern kingdom. Uh, they've been rebelling against God. God has finally turned them over to uh, their oppressors and to judgment. And so the Assyrians come in in 722 B.C., and they take over the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, part of they, at that point in time, they kind of bring out this twofold path to destroying the culture and the religion of the Jews. Part of that is they're going to kidnap half the people, bring them back to Assyria, and, um, and make them slaves and concubines, and essentially crush their soul, their spirit, their religious practice that way. The other part of the strategy is to go and to move into the northern kingdom of Israel to intermarry with the remaining people and to create brand new customs and traditions where they are going to destroy from within. And so this is exactly what they do. The Assyrians move in, they intermarry with the remaining Jews, they bring in their pagan religious practices and stuff. And so what ends up taking place is the Samaritans that move, the, the brand new group of Samaritans that come from that 
are going to have this, uh, this intermarriage where the Jewish culture is not upheld. The religious practices are watered down. It's kind of a combination between Judaism and pagan practices. And so it's, you can imagine why there's going to be a lot of contention, right? Somewhere around the 400s BC, the southern kingdom is brought back from Babylon. They're coming in trying to rebuild the city walls because of all the destruction and everything that's been wiped out in all those wars. Um, and the people that are going to oppose them the loudest are going to be the Samaritans that are coming in, and they're opposing Nehemiah's work in rebuilding the walls. I don't know if you remember that, but that's what's going on. The Samaritans are in vehement opposition to the Jews and rebuilding of the walls. Uh, they're even in massive opposition to rebuilding the temple, right? This is a huge part. In the first century B.C., uh, before Christ has come around and just before that and everything, um, the Samaritans are the ones that are going to come in and create this massive controversy and say, hey, the, the, the building of the temple, the temple should not be there in Jerusalem. The one true temple belongs on Mount Gerizim right there in Samaria. And so there is massive, massive division here between Jews and Samaritans. And that's going to be this woman's strike number one, right? She's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. It's why most people um, when they're making that travel up to Jerusalem or, to, or down to, to uh, up to Galilee, I guess is where he was, when they're making that trip, most of them are going are to take an extra six days so that they can walk all the way around Samaria and avoid going, going through Samaria altogether. So when I say that, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Jesus chose to go through Samaria in order to keep this divine appointment. And so that's strike number one against this woman. People did not do that. Jews and Samaritans did not interact like, like, like he's interacting with her here at this well. Um, strike number two is that not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a Samaritan woman. She's not a woman in 2019, church. Like she's a woman in a highly, highly patriarchal, highly oppressive culture to women where they did not have a voice they did not have a right to vote. They did not have a right to own land. Not that the voting was happening at the time, but they didn't have a right to own land. They didn't have a right to speak. Men didn't typically speak to women publicly at the time. Uh, rabbis absolutely didn't talk to strange women publicly or anything of that nature. In fact, D.A. Carson puts it like this. Um, he, says, he says, for a rabbi to talk with a woman in public, even his own wife, was at best considered a waste of time and at worst a diversion from the study of Torah, and therefore, potentially a great evil that could lead someone straight to hell. Like, that's the world that she's living in right there. So it's not just that she's a Samaritan versus a Jew or anything like that, but they're living in this world where um, women didn't speak. They didn't have rights. They weren't valued. They weren't lifted up. They weren't seen as equal, any of these other kinds of things. And so not only is she a Samaritan, but she is a Samaritan woman. Nevertheless, Jesus comes and he engages and the third strike is right here, too. You remember what the third strike is? She comes to this well at noon. And the reason that that's significant is because no one comes to the well at noon. That's not what it, what, how it works. Women would come early in the morning before the sun was really up while it was still cool. They would draw water for all the, all the chores and everything going on that day, uh, all the water that they would need that day. They would do it in the context of community. Um, and so it was a social thing around the well a lot of times, too, kind of like the water cooler at work, I guess. Um, and that's what happened. And then here's this woman. It's going to come at noon all alone in order to draw, well, draw water that day because she's a shamed Samaritan woman. And we're going to find that out about her, her story a little bit later on. But uh, she's, not, uh, she's not in the normal context of, of other women and, 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 and the, the, the other people that were there in Samaria at that time. She's coming all by herself. And church, what I want you to see is I want you to see that that Jesus is willing to break through every single barrier that this woman is going to understand who he really is. 
He doesn't care about the Jew-Gentile conflict. He doesn't care about the social norms between men and women. He doesn't care that she's actually shamed in culture, which we're going to discover a little bit better later on. He doesn't care about any of these, these barriers that are there. Jesus is willing to break through the entire thing. And what I want us to say, like, don't miss what's taking place is, is we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we take our first steps and how do we engage the culture really, really well? Like, Jesus is showing us the power of what it looks like to lead with love. I mean, first and foremost, above everything else, he is coming in and he's saying, you know what, like, social norms be darned. Like, I'm willing to break through these things. I don't care about any of these things. I'm willing to come and I want, I have this appointment with this woman right here. She needs to understand who I am. And he's just leading with love. And church, some of us wonder, okay, what do we do first? How do I engage? Like, do I have anything to offer? Where do I even begin? I don't understand apologetics. I don't understand this whole thing. And I think what he's showing us right here is that if you and I can just simply learn to lead with love, then you're communicating half the message. I remember um, one of my favorite stories that kind of illustrates this whole principle is a story that Tony Campolo tells. I've shared it here before one time in the past, a little while ago. It's my favorite story. I love this story. Um, but Tony Campolo is an evangelist and a pastor. We would not al align on everything theologically, which doesn't matter. Uh, he's been a faithful evangelist, and God has used him tremendously over the course of time. But he shares this story of being away at this crusade one weekend. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning, and he says, you know, a lot of times before I preach, he goes, I'm not able to sleep, which I never sleep well on Saturday nights. But anyway, like, uh, that happens, and so he's awake at night, and he's, uh, he's alone in his hotel. And so he decides to go down to the diner to go get a dinner that night. And so he's sitting in this diner, he's having some coffee and some hash browns, and, and, um, and there's a couple prostitutes that come and sit in the, sit in the table next to him. And um, they start talking and engaging. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning, they're done with their shift, and they're wrapping things up for the night. And, and he overhears the conversation, one of them named Agnes is saying to the other, yeah, um, I'm, I, it's, tomorrow's actually my birthday. And the girl's like, oh, that's great, happy birthday, that's wonderful, how are you going to celebrate? And she goes, well... You know, I'm not going to celebrate. I've, uh, truth of the matter is I've, I've never celebrated a birthday in my life. And uh, she goes, I never had a birthday cake. No one's saying happy birthday to me. It's just I'm just going to go and do what we always do. And uh, they continue their conversation and take off. And Tony is telling the story just going, you know, when I was hearing her talk about that, he goes, I, my heart was just broken. How is it? Can you imagine being a mid-20-year-old person and never having uh, your birthday celebrated? The fact that you were born and brought into this world. I mean, just an absolutely devastating thing. And Tony's sitting there, kind of his heart breaks at the story. So he gets up and he goes and talks to the owner of the diner. And he says, hey, do you know those two girls? And he's like, oh, yeah, they're in here every single night right around the same time, about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Their shift is done. They always come in here, order the same things. And this is where they hang out. A lot of their friends do too. And so Tony looks at the guy and he goes, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to throw that girl a birthday party. Can you spread, help me spread the word with some of our friends and people that may know her and just get people here tomorrow night? 2.30 in the morning, I'll meet you here, I'll take care of the rest. And he's like, okay, we can play that game. And so the next night comes, it's 2.30 in the morning, Tony shows up, he's got balloons, he's got a cake, he's got streamers, and he kind of decorates the diner. Sure enough, right around 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, Agnes and her friend come into, the, come into uh, the diner that night. And as soon as she walks in the door, the place, there's only like 12 to 15 people there, they erupt and they're just saying, happy birthday, Agnes. And she just kind of sees what's taking place and she falls to the ground and just starts weeping. Again, like I said, like you can imagine, if you've never had anybody celebrate your life in your entire life, your entire existence, finally they're here and they're celebrating. She's just weeping. And Tony comes up with this cake, and he says, Agnes, we got a cake here for you. you got some, can you just blow these candles out? And she's going, who are you, number one? Um, 
but, uh, but he goes, I've got this cake, just come blow this out. And she just looks at this cake, and she's like, this is for me? She's like, I've never had a cake in my life. And she's about to blow out the candles, and then she goes, would you mind if I just keep this cake? And Tony's like, I, I guess so, sure. You're typically supposed to blow these out and do that. I guess so. And he goes, this is where it gets really weird because Agnes just grabs the cake and she turns and she walks out of the diner so that she can take that cake back to her room and save it because she's never had a cake before. And Tony goes, it's kind of awkward at this point in time because I didn't know she was coming back or what we were all doing. But he goes, I'm sitting there in the diner and the only thing I can think to say is, hey, um, would you guys mind if we just prayed for Agnes right now? And the owner of the diner pipes up and he just goes, what are you, like, are you like one of those Christians types? And he goes, I guess, yeah, I guess kind of, I'm, I'm a pastor. And the guy goes, you're a pastor? You're, you're a pastor. He's like, that's impossible. Pastors don't do this. Pastors don't love prostitutes. Pastors don't hang out here in the middle of the night. Pastors don't do this kind of a thing. And he goes, I, he goes, what kind of a pastor are you? And he goes, I, I'm just one of those pastors that thinks that God loves people like Agnes and her friends. That's it. And he goes, well, if that's true, then I'd have to join your church. And he kind of laughed about that a little bit. Shortly after that, Agnes and her friend return to the diner, and they come back in, and, and Tony says that uh, they, they introduce Tony and get to know each other. And, and of course, the, the, the owner of the diner says, uh, hey, Agnes, this guy's a preacher. This guy's a pastor. And, of course, that's just adding to the barrage of emotions that she's feeling. And, and she kind of is just like, this whole thing is just crazy making to me. And Tony goes on and says, that night I got to pray with Agnes and I got to pray with two others of her friends to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Church, it's just the beauty of what it looks like to lead with love. Keep it simple, stupid. You don't know what to say. We didn't go to seminary. I don't know apologetics. I don't have the entire thing figured out. Jesus is simply saying, hey, I've got a divine appointment here in Samaria Everyone else in the world is going around Samaria. I'm a man living, interacting with a woman in a man's world. This whole thing doesn't typically take place. I don't care about the boundaries. I don't care about the obstacles. I don't care about any of these things. I don't care that she's shamed and despised and not upheld by the rest of the culture. I've got a divine appointment with this woman, and she needs to understand that she is loved by a God in heaven who has sent me to her this day. Church, let's keep it, keep it simple, Okay. He is showing us at the very beginning the beauty of what it looks like to lead with love. The story continues, and at this point in time, like the woman's just intrigued, right? Who are you? Why are you asking me for some water? You're willing to drink from my own ladle? You didn't bring your own cup? I mean, that doesn't happen in our culture either. She's curious about what's going on. Jesus answers her and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A little confusing. Nevertheless, the woman says, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water that's welling up to eternal life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Obviously, she's intrigued by this proposition of living water, and she's not fully understanding what he's, what he's actually offering here at this time. She's looking at this water saying, hey, I don't, I don't want to be physically thirsty anymore. Give it to me. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds here, because it's awkward. It's weird. He looks at her, and he says, go, call your husband and come back. And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, You've had five husbands. The man that you have now is not your husband. 
what you've said is quite true. In other words, like, yeah, you've been through the ringer. You've had five different marriages, and it's not likely that every one of them was just passing away. The man that you're with right now, he's not even your husband. And so the woman tries to change the subject right here, and she tries to get the attention off of herself and says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Um, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. By the way, church, have you ever noticed that if you go out there and you share the gospel with someone, the enemy tries to steal, kill, and destroy whatever it is that you're trying to plant? And what's inevitably going to happen is that people are going to come up with all kinds of objections that are not the main point. They are not the main point. They're going to be sitting there and saying, okay, Christ died for my sins. I can have life in him if I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I get that, but here's the question I have. What about the dinosaurs? Like, I, what about the dinosaurs? Like, how old is the earth really? Is it young or is it old? And, and, and what's going to happen is the enemy is going to place all these objections in their mind that are not the main point. It's exactly what's taking place. Jesus is saying, no, the living water that I'm offering to you right now has something to do with your past. It has something to do with the fact that you've had five different husbands. The one that you're with right now isn't actually your husband's. It has something to do with the fact that you've been shamed in the past and now you're actually all alone. The living water that I'm offering to you right there, it has to do with that kind of a thing right there. And she doesn't really get it, and so she's trying to divert and say, okay, uh, what about this theological matter over here? Which mountain are we supposed to worship on? And Jesus isn't having it. And he's, saying, he's bringing it back, and he's going to say, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, very, very soon, you won't care about mountains. You won't care about temples. Because what Jesus knows, what she doesn't know, is that he's about to, that time is coming, and is very, very soon, when he's going to die upon a cross, the veil in the temple is going to be torn in two from top to bottom, and the Holy Spirit is going to take up residence, and your body is going to be called now a temple of the Holy Spirit. She doesn't know that. He's alluding to some of these things right now. And he's saying it's not the main point. It's not about which mountain you're on. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. That's pretty, pretty absolute right there. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. The worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman says to him, I know that Messiah and I know that he's coming. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to me. And then Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Church, did you notice the number of truth claims that Jesus is making in this passage? Like, did you note, have you ever been tentative in talking with someone? And maybe you had that feeling like uh, we were talking about earlier, and you're saying, okay, this is arrogant to, to assume that, that you know truth or that, you can, or that this is actually truth. You ever been tentative about that in the past? I just want you to notice how, how, how strong Jesus is handling the truth right here. I mean, he's saying just some really, really dynamic things. I, I am the one speaking to you and the Messiah. I'm not a teacher. I'm not one of many different ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I, the one speaking to you, I am the Messiah. It's who I am. You can't deny this. This isn't a matter of opinion or, or anything like this. This is who I am. I am Aaron Armstrong. I am the Messiah. This is who I am. I mean, just massive claims right here. And, of course, before that, he, he's speaking about her sin. I mean, have you ever been tentative to say, look, you're living in sin? And the reality is, like, I am too. And the reality is, like, I've blown it too. Like, we're not different from each other at all. But have you ever felt that, 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 that hesitation to talk about the, the, the truthfulness of people's sin, including your own, to deal with it yourself? I mean, Jesus is saying it's, it's true. You want this living water, but the living water I came to bring, it has something to do with the fact that, that you've had five husbands in the past. The man that you're with right now is not your current husband. I mean, he's calling her out in her sin. 
And he's saying, like, that's the, what the living water came to satisfy right there. This inner longing of your soul, which you've been searching to find that satisfaction in a million other places. Like, that's what I came to satisfy in this gift of living water right here. And then he's saying things like everyone's soul is thirsting for a number of different things. But guess what? Like, I can provide you a living water so you'll never thirst again. Church, isn't this exactly what people call arrogant today? I mean, isn't this what we think? That if you make claims like this and you present what Christ has said, that this is what arrogance actually is. I mean, it's what a lot of people today are calling the problem of binary exclusive truth, narrow truth. There's a number of different words for it, but it's, they're calling it the problem of binary, right versus wrong, true versus untrue, the problem of narrow kind of truth. Right, and, and, and you see this all the time, and it's kind of like this idea that, that binary, narrow, exclusive truth, one or the other, true or not true, good or bad, that kind of a truth and conviction about such truth should be avoided at all costs. I was reading a book a little while ago called The Illusions of Postmodernism by Terry Eagleton, but uh, in this book he was just talking about how postmodern academia is pushing this a lot today. And they're, and they're saying things like, 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 this is the way that things are going, that, that, that binary truth claims should not be pursued, that they are wrong in and of themselves. Which, by the way, you see the hypocrisy in that statement, right? It is absolutely wrong for you to claim that things are absolutely wrong. Um, right? Okay, you're, you're creating binary truths by making these assertions, meaning you and I cannot ever, ever, ever get away from binary truth claims, right? You want to be really honest about it? You're not getting away from binary truth claims, right? Nevertheless, we try to, and what this guy's saying is, this is a mark of our postmodern culture, really for a couple of different reasons. Number one is that uh, the definition, or the nature of truth is completely shifted over the past, slowly and subtly, you could say 50 years, uh, a lot more aggressively in recent times, right? It used to be that truth was something objective and outside of you. By the way, you hear me say this a lot lately because I think it's my conviction as a pastor to say, hey, here are where the flaming arrows of the enemy are trying to attack us and bring us down. Um, this is an absolutely one of them. It used to be that truth was objective and outside of you, something you discover out there. And once you discover it, it is our responsibility to come and surrender to it. Um, now we are saying things like, hey, truth is something that is subjective and, and, and comes from within you. And, and so... What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me, it's true for me. That's why we're having debates about so many different things that used to be a given um, today. Uh, sexuality, uh, gender, life, definition of life, things of these, this nature. What's true for you is true for you. Hey, that's great. Jesus works for you. That's awesome. I'm proud of you. It doesn't really work for me. And so just leave me alone. And, and, and that's kind of the mentality today. Um, the other reason is because... Um, and so that, that's a major thing. Truth has completely shifted over the last number of years. The other reason we get away from this is there is a strong conviction that uh, binary truth claims are always necessarily going to lead to uh, they're always going to lead to arrogance and division, right? If you believe that you've got the truth, if you believe that there's a right and a wrong, um, this is good, this is bad, then necessarily you're always going to feel superior to other people, and there's always going to be a sense of arrogance. There's always going to be a sense of division. Church, is that true? Is that necessarily true? Absolutely not. Is there arrogance and division in religion? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the Crusades were not a happy time for, for religious people, 
right? It doesn't matter what, what, what brand of religion you are, right? It's not a happy time, right? Like, there's a lot of arrogance, a lot of division. Even politically, religiously today, a lot of division, a lot of animosity, a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of arrogance and things of that nature. But here it is, church. Like, the problem of arrogance is not a problem with truth. The problem with arrogance is a problem uh, with a soul that thirsts for righteousness and does not know where to find it. Right? The problem with arrogance is, is not a problem with how you handle truth. The problem with arrogance is a problem of the soul that is thirsting for righteousness and does not know where else to find it except by elevating themselves. Arrogance and self-righteousness and divisiveness began in the garden. The first time Adam and Eve tried to self-justify and to elevate themselves in some way, that's when sin came in and brought in all these problems that we're seeing today. I mean, church, honestly, you look at this scene right here, where in the world is the arrogance in Christ? Where in the world is the arrogance in what he does in this encounter with this Samaritan woman? I mean, he leads with love. I mean, the very first thing is he is willing to cross boundaries no one else is willing to cross. He is willing to go directly to this woman, engage with this woman, do the things no one else is able to do, willing to do, simply because he is leading with love. He is breaking down every single social barrier um, people erected at that point in time. And then he offers her this spring of living water that'll never run dry. And then, of course, he does reference her sin. Yes, you've got five husbands. The one that you're with right now uh, is not your husband. You are living in sin. And then he circles back around and he reminds her, hey, I am the Messiah that you're talking to right now. I know you intimately. I know your past. I know everything there is to know about you. And I am still coming here with this offer of living water that can cleanse your soul from within, produce this spring of living water inside of you that'll never, ever, ever run dry. Church, honestly, where in the world is the arrogance and the superiority in that kind of a thing? Where in the world is the arrogance and superiority in the early church, these, these first and second century believers that are walking with Jesus, seeing his life, understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that he came to do, this gospel that says uh, that you and I are saved by grace. It is not a result of our works so that none of us are able to, sin, are able to boast. Like where in the world is arrogance in this kind of a message? I mean, in the early church, it just was not there at the very, very beginning as they were seeing different things come about. Julian, who is the, the Roman emperor in the second century, uh, he writes this letter to Arsatius, um, complaining about the early Christians at this time. Listen to how he describes them. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their own charity to strangers. He said, these godless Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. In other words, like church, this is, like, he is angry at the fact that the Christians in the first and second century are so charitable to people that are not of their own clan. I mean, it is over and over and over again. I mean, it is Jew and Gentile, it's Samaritan, it's rich, it's poor, it's black, it's white, it's brown, it's everything in between. And they're coming together in this unified community and they're sharing their goods with one another. They're charitable to strangers. And, and like Julian, this Roman emperor, is just angry at the whole scene. And of course, the irony of the thing is that the Romans prescribed to this religious view that was some of the most inclusive and, uh, and non-binary religious practices of the day. I mean, this is, a, this is a religious practice that says, hey, there's thousands of different gods. There is no one true God. Everyone's free to choose the God that they want to worship. They can worship him however they want to do it. I mean, it is one of the most inclusive and non-binary religious practices of the day. And here he is, arrogant and hostile towards the early Christian community for, because of the fact that they are charitable to other people who are also in need. Church, like the problem is not 
Uh, the problem is not with the handling of truth or the fact that you believe in a right or a wrong, exclusive or absolute truth or any of these things. The problem is with a heart that thirsts for a million other things and a soul that thirsts for a million other things that does not know where to turn in order to find satisfaction. It is why Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you are thirsting for a million other things in the same way that you're going to drink from this well and you're going to be thirsty again. Your soul thirsts for a million other things. But I and I alone am able to provide this living water. And when you drink from this living water, you will never, ever, ever thirst again. And it is a beautiful invitation. It's why you and I, you don't have to run from truth. You can, you can accurately, boldly present the truth. Because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely surrounded in grace from beginning to end. He leads with love. He ends with love. He ends with this offer of living water. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's separation. Yes, there's death. But it's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to redeem the entire thing. The whole thing is wrapped up in grace. I'll never forget, years ago, I was engaging with this guy over in Vickery Meadows. He was explaining to his entire story to me. He's ruined the whole thing, drug addiction, left his spouse, children out of wedlock, massive alcohol addiction today, can't keep a job, living um, in and out of, always getting kicked out of his apartment. And he's sharing with me his whole story. And, and I asked him the question. I said, hey, let me ask you this. So, what do you think that is, like, you've been running for a long time. You've been seeking satisfaction in a million different things. What do you think that you're, you're really, really looking for? And I'll never forget what he said. He just simply, he looked down and he goes, you know, no one's ever asked me that before. And he goes, I guess what I'd have to say is that I've been looking for something that can make me feel okay, that can make me feel numb to forget about how much I've destroyed things. And he goes, I guess, I guess I've been looking for something that can just make me forget about how bad things actually were. Church, it's not just him, is it? I mean, what Jesus is saying here is that it's not just, it's not just him. He's saying that every single soul thirsts for righteousness. We, we thirst for satisfaction. And if we're not finding it, if we're not finding it in Christ, we're going to try to find it somewhere. I mean, this woman, wh wh what is she doing? She's, she's trying to find satisfaction, this, this sense that, hey, I'm lovable, I'm accepted, I'm approved through different men, through different relationships. Is that still true today? Do people ever try to find satisfaction for the longings of their soul in relationships and in sexual uh, relationships? And I mean, does that ever take place today? I mean, it's all over the place. And what Jesus is saying here, I'm bringing this offer of living water and that what, what I'm providing to you, I can provide this satisfaction that your soul has always been longing for so that you'll never, ever, ever thirst again. Anyone remember the three basic needs we talked about with psychology today a number of years ago? Psychology Today wrote this article, and they simply said this. They said, every single human being has three basic needs. And if these needs aren't being met, they're going to go to incredible lengths in order to have these needs met. They need to feel safe. They need to feel morally clean and good about themselves. And they need to feel significant. And the article went on to say, like, every single human being has these three most basic needs. And if they are not finding it, then they will do whatever they can in order to make sure that th these three basic needs are met. And what Jesus is simply saying is here, that's exactly true, and it's exactly what I came to provide. I came to provide these springs of living water so that your soul will be eternally satisfied in every possible way and so that you'll never actually thirst again. I love the way Bill Hybels put it so long ago. Um, he wrote down and he just simply said, I think what Jesus is saying is that to those people who are filled with shame, to the people who are dying to feel clean again, Jesus would remind, that you, remind you that you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You need to feel clean. You need to feel morally good. Then Jesus would remind you that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has now set you free from the law of sin and death. 
to the people that need to feel good about themselves, uh, Christ would remind you that you've now been justified in the name of Jesus Christ, meaning you've actually been declared righteous before a holy God if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and you have received that gift. The word of God says that he grants you his righteousness. He gives you that right standing before a holy God. And if that is the, the longing of your soul to feel right and to feel decent about yourself, it is exactly what Christ has provided through the living waters of what he's done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the people who are needing to feel safe, Jesus would remind you that I came to provide for them eternal life and you shall never, ever perish. No one will snatch you out of my hand. To people who are searching for significance, he's going to say things like, he knew you while you were in your mother's womb. He knit you together on purpose. He, he numbered the very hairs upon your head. John's going to say, as many as have received him, to them he's been given the right to be called children of God. In other words, like Christ, this living water, what he does is he grafts you into the family and he calls you not only a friend, but he calls you a son or a daughter of the king. And if you need to feel significant, like that's what he does on our behalf. We are his workmanship, Paul's going to say, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. In other words, every single man, woman, or child has been created in the image of God and given divine, eternal purposes before him. Those are part of the living waters which Jesus is offering and saying, you, your soul is thirsting for different things, but I and I alone can bring that satisfaction that you're ultimately longing for. To the person that's searching for uh, the, 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 this wandering and weakness, he provides strength. To the weary, he offers rest. To the poor, he offers contentment. To the grieving, he offers his presence. To the sick, he offers his healing. And to the dying, he offers eternal life. Church, everything your soul longs for, Christ is offering in this offer of living water, these springs of, of living water which begin inside your soul and wash you completely clean and they keep bubbling up and they keep bubbling up and they keep producing his life, things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's what he does and it's exactly the offer that Jesus is bringing the Samaritan woman and he speaks that truth boldly because the whole thing is wrapped in grace. He's leading with love and he's reminding her of this beautiful, beautiful offer that it doesn't matter the fact that you're a Samaritan. It doesn't matter that you're a woman. It doesn't matter if, that you're shamed and despised and you've, you've went through so much in your life, whether it's your fault or, you're not, or not your fault, like none of those things matter because I'm coming with this offer of an enormous amount of grace, these springs of living water that can do for you what nothing else can do. Church, when that's your message, you, like, you can confidently stand for the gospel truth and not be concerned of arrogance, or superiority, because the gospel message is that we're all on the same page before a holy God in desperate need of his grace. That's exactly what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. It is the only religious message that says, hey, we are all lost and dead in our sins, and we all needed God to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. There is no room for arrogance when you understand the gospel truth and what Jesus has come to do for you. The story keeps going, and I love how it wraps up because this is kind of the in my opinion, this is this beautiful part of this story. It says in verse 28, the woman having left her water jar went back into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came back out of the town, made their way to Jesus, and it says in verse 39 that many of the Samaritans from that town, they believed in him. Why? Because of this woman's testimony. Because of this shamed Samaritan woman's testimony. Because this woman who was not seminary trained, this woman who did not take apologetics classes, this woman who did not know the word of God, this woman who does not have 25, 50 years of faithful service and time in church and understanding, this woman simply was willing to leave and to go from there and open her mouth 
and share her personal story of how there's a man at the well who knew everything there is to know about my life and he called me out on it and he spoke the truth and he loved me anyway. And he offered me this gift of living water, the spring of living water. You've got to come and you've got to come and see this Jesus. Church, some of us make this so difficult. We think, hey, I've got to have the degree, I've got to have the classes, I've got to have the understanding, I've got to be able to overcome every single objection in the world. I've got to be in church forever. I've got to have a perfectly morally clean life. I've got to have all these things won. And the beauty of this story is that that God uses this woman, this shamed Samaritan woman, to go back to the Samaritan people and say, hey, come see Jesus. The text is going to continue and say, for the next two days, they kept Jesus there. They invited a Jew to come stay there. And they said, hey, we want to know who you are. And it says that many other Samaritans came to believe because of the testimony of this woman. Some of you wonder if you've got anything to offer, if you've got anything to bring to the table. Like, where do I even begin? I didn't have the education. I don't have all the answers. And I think what Jesus is showing us here is that there is power in your story. And if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been saved by him, then you have a story to tell. I'll never forget years ago, I was working with, uh, it's probably about 10 years ago at this time, and I was working with Wayne Walker in the Our Calling Ministry. It's our homeless outreach here in Dallas. It's the beginning of his days. It may have been longer than 10 years ago, but um, they'd just begun doing search and rescue ministry, which is one of the things they engage in. They'll go to different woods and areas in the, in the city of Dallas to go find homeless people. They'll track them, place a pin on this app there. Uh, they'll bring goods and supplies, try to meet them where they are, love them, share the gospel, get them into some of their recovery programs and things of that nature. But we go to them. It's search and rescue. And I was engaging this one time. It was the second time that I'd done it. And uh, there was a group of, of students that were with us that day. I didn't know where they were from. I just got partnered with them. And together we went into the woods and we're engaging with these people. And I'll never forget sitting there. We were at this pipe, uh, this open pipe area in the middle of the woods. I have no idea where we were. Um, and I'm talking with this group of about four homeless men. And, um, and I'm talking with them and we're sharing these different things. And I'm not very, getting very far with them in the gospel. They're kind of going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this a thousand times from people like you that come in here and share and that kind of a deal. And it wasn't going very far. And then all of a sudden, this little girl, 16-year-old teenage girl pipes up, and she goes, hey, do you mind if I just share with you my story? I was like, yeah, by all means, jump in here. Go. And um, she just pipes up, and she just says, you know what? Um, One year ago to this day, I was sitting exactly where you are. I ran away from home. I was addicted to meth. I was selling my body to try to survive. And I was living in the woods, just like you are. 16-year-old teenage girl. And in the middle of that place, she goes, I was out there in the woods one day, and a team of people came, and they did exactly what we're doing right now. They shared with me about this Jesus, and they told me that he could change my life, and that I could be saved, that I could be forgiven, that my past could be redeemed. And they told me about Jesus, and, and I finally said yes to Jesus that day, and I just, I want to tell you that it's all true. It's all true. And she goes, from that time, I came back out, and I I engage in the recovery programs, and, and I've been sober now for the past six to eight months, somewhere around that time. And, and she goes, I've been sober, and I'm pursuing my GED now, trying to get out of high school and trying to catch up, and, and I'm pursuing these things, and, and God's got my life back online. And I just wanted to tell you that it's just, it's, it's all true. It's all true. And I'll never forget, like, I had the arguments, I had the, I had the, the, the knowledge and stuff, and none of that mattered that day. That man looked at that woman and the people that were there in that crowd, they just looked up and they started crying. These tears started coming down. 
and he looks at her and he goes, if, if that can be true, or if that's what God can do for you, then he can do it for me too. And he goes, I'm in. Give me this Jesus. And this girl, 16-year-old girl who was homeless a year before, sat there and prayed with this group of people, and they gave their life to, to Christ. Church, some of you wonder if you have got anything to offer. Some of you wonder if you know enough information. And what can God do in my life? And what Jesus is showing us is he is breaking down every single barrier. And he's saying, hey, church, keep it simple. Keep it simple. If you'll just simply lead with love. And you won't be afraid to go in and tell the truth, knowing that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is all wrapped in love. It is all wrapped in grace. If you'll just go and do that, lead with love. If you'll go and speak the truth, you don't know what else to do. Simply go and share your story. People will come to faith. God will be glorified. People will cross from death into life. There's my hope and my prayer is that we wouldn't be a church that's wrapped up in that statistic that's 80% of us are cheering us on going, hey, go Martins, way to go. Go Wendy, go all these people. That we would be a church of, of believers that understands the beauty of what God has offered us in Jesus Christ, this, this spring of living water. And that we'd be compelled to go into our community and to be able to love well and to be able to speak the truth well and to be able to share faithfully.